somebody asked me, what do you want to be? Without thinking, I said doctor. And I was wondering, why did I say that? I mean, you know, I didn't have this Florence Nightingale kind of uh, complex where I wanted to serve humanity. Mm -hmm. But somehow that came up and then that's all it was. And I didn't even think a second time about that. It just happened. Woof, woof. Welcome to Ghanacast. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Padmani Rangaswamy, who has been a practicing neurologist and a long-time heartfulness practitioner and trainer. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Padmani, for joining us and taking out time. It's wonderful to have you with us. And um, I do know that you're a neurologist and you've uh, had a career in medicine. And uh, much of that career has been in the United States. Uh, yes. So can you tell us more about uh, your work life, what you have done? Well, uh, I started, um, I went to medical school in Delhi. Uh, and then I did my um, um, master's in internal medicine, um, which was also in Delhi, in Maulana Azad. And then after that, um, I worked for the government, believe it or not. Uh, for, uh, yeah, I finished in 75. I was, I worked there for five years. I worked for an um, organization called Central Government Health Scheme in the beginning. Oh, wow. And then after that, I um, went to work for a teaching hospital in Delhi. And then um, at that time, um, I was very much interested in neurology. So I joined the neurology department and I was uh, working there when I went to the U.S. And there I had to qualify for my usual exams and stuff. And then I did my residency. They gave me a lot of break because um, they thought... I had done enough to give me two years break. So I did uh, not all the four years as most people would have done. I did probably two two years and a little few months more or something. And this I did at Stanford. And uh, so after I finished my residency, I went to Southern California and did my taught there and also did my fellowship at the uh, University of California, Irvine. And then subsequently, I went into private practice. Um, and then I did a lot of clinical research simultaneously. So my, my, uh, my practice was not your standard practice because in the beginning, it was like any other regular practice, office and hospital-based practice. But later on, I... I modified it to um, to not work so hard. <laughs> so what I did was, um, I don't know whether I need to get so personal, but anyway, I, I used to come home um, twice a year, or at least, or sometimes three times. And That's back to India. Back to India to visit, because my mm -hmm. parents were elderly, so I always felt that I have to come spend some time with them, but... The, the life would be, you know, murder before and murder afterwards because I would pile up so much work. And one time when um, when I came to India and um, 
my father had a habit of lining up a lot of patients even in India when I came. So my mother, as I was leaving, said, if I had been sick, maybe I would have spent a little bit more time with you. Oh, I felt so bad. I said, no, this is not right. So I decided that I would um, not work as much. So I got into an arrangement by which I worked three months at a time. And this was um, this was with a guy from Yale, and I told him that I can only work three months, and I can only work when the temperature is between sixty and eighty degree Fahrenheit. So I picked spring and fall. Wow! And uh, so, so I would go three months. So by the time I get settled, I would be time. So I did a lot of clinical research simultaneously. So it was that kind of a lifestyle. And then, then Chariji asked me to come back to India. So I did in 93, I came back to India. And then I was here till 95. And then he said, no, um, you're not using your full potential, so you should go back and work there. So I went in 95 back to the US. And uh, from then on, um, uh, I had this arrangement I told you and then sure. Then um, afterwards, I decided to focus only on clinical research. So I did uh, a few years of just pure clinical research in an independent independent research organization. So yeah, uh, research has been um, a backbone. I've done research even before I left the country here. And I've always been interested in, in an inclusive type of medical practice. I, in fact, learned some acupuncture from uh, a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist who went to mainland China in those days. I'm talking about 78, wow. 79. To learn acupuncture. To learn acupuncture. And I did treat some patients with Parkinson's, and they did get better. Wow. Yeah. So I did that, and then I used to send some of my really intractable epilepsy patients to Ayurvedic physicians or, you know, if they felt somebody else was able to give them better care, I say, please go, because whatever I cannot do, there must be some human being that can help you with. Mm -hmm. So I've always felt that um, all of us know a little, not a whole lot. <laughs> and so if all of us put our heads together, we can do a better service to the patients that we have. So I always try to put that into practice in my practice. And so... If you go to Ayurvedishala, a lot of them in, in Delhi would know that I would send patients to them, that I couldn't treat myself because of people with bad epilepsy that I couldn't do anything with. If you give them medication, they suffered from medication. If you didn't give them medication, they mm. had other problems. So it was, it was a very difficult uh, situation. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the practices in India, you know, you just go in the morning and you come, you see the last patient till he's there, you know. Mm -hmm. They close the registration at around 12. Patients start coming at 9 o'clock and whoever comes before 12 o'clock, you see. So you spend a whole day, you know, tw twice a week, you're just in the... So you do see a variety of patients. In fact, uh, when I was at Stanford, uh, one, of the, one of my attendings was the dean of... Uh, uh, the university, incidentally, because he was a neurologist. So he looked at me, he says, 
you must have seen more patients than I have seen. <laughs> I said, maybe I didn't understand as much about them, but yes, I have seen them. <laughs> Definitely. The numbers. Numbers, right. yes. So yes. it was a lovely experience for me because I felt that I had the grounding of clinical practice, which, um, and I can share a little joke with you. There was a guy with me, a fellow resident, and, you know, uh, we discussed a case that had just come in, and he says, oh, I know this is the diagnosis. He was so sure, and I said, how do you know that? So he said, uh, you know, I've seen one case, but classic. <laughs> And I looked at him, I've seen thousands, but I don't feel so sure. <laughs> the old adage that little knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> well, it's dangerous or otherwise. I think what is not understood, and this is one thing that one of our professors at Mulanaza taught us. He said, when I finished my MD and we were leaving, he said, you know, if I've taught you to know what you don't know and to know where to ask for help, I think I've done my job. Wow. And I think I've taken that very seriously because it too, it's too easy to depend on your degrees and your book reading to think you know. Mm. But all you know is a, a little bit of information and that may not be enough for the patient you're treating. Sure, mm. sure. So where did this interest in uh, medicine actually start? Was it something you had since childhood, growing up in school, or do you remember a time where your inclination towards medicine started? I have no idea. <laughs> I think when I was in second grade, I think, somebody asked me, what do you want to be? Without thinking, I said doctor. And I was wondering, why did I say that? I, you know, I didn't have this Florence Nightingale kind of uh, complex where... I wanted to serve humanity, mm -hmm. but somehow that came up and then that's all it was. And I didn't even think a second time about that. It just happened. So what, did your family have a history in the medical profession? No, I, in my in my immediate family, I'm the, I'm the first doctor. Wow. So I don't know why I had that. To this day, I have no clue why I said that. Wow. Mm. And... You mentioned this special arrangement that you had. I think it's something that a lot of people deal with who go abroad from India and uh, they have family in India, they have parents in India, and they aren't able to visit. You, of course, will, you know, uh, wise enough to make this arrangement. But a lot of people do, cannot, do not have, uh, you know, the wherewithal to make that arrangement. So what are the sacrifices you needed to make? I think uh, monetarily it must have been a loss. You know, it's interesting. Um, I was just telling somebody, he said, why did, you, why did you do that? And I said, look, I'm a vegetarian. I don't drink. I don't need a, I don't need a beachfront property. So I really don't need a whole lot of money. And I said, if I want to work, I could work anywhere. I don't have to work in the U.S. And so... I felt that at least I owed this to my parents. That I mean, I didn't have to hear my mother say that she had to be sick to be seen by me. Mm. And um, really speaking, you know, we most of us have uh, this concept of uh, of needing money for retirement, which I also had. I'm not going to pretend I didn't know. I didn't feel that because. 
you never know, you know, you get sick, sometimes uh, insurances don't take care of you, so you always worry whether you can, uh, you know, take care of yourself at that point. But then at some point you also have to think that you have to live today and not be future protective, you know? Mm. So it is what it is, you know, you'll figure out a way. I mean, if you've come this far in life, you'll find a way to survive. And, you know, that's that's the attitude I took. It, it was easier for me to do, I must say, because I didn't have that many commitments like others might have had. People have young children that they have to raise. They can't be running around like I do. But then I told you I'm a gypsy by instinct. So <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get really restless if I have to be in one place for too long. Wow. But uh, the, you know, you mentioned you're a gypsy, but in one way you found uh, a place, uh, uh, this is more of a metaphysical place, not a, not a physical place, an anchor in heartfulness. How did that start? Oh, I'm the least likely person that, that could have, that would have joined um, a, a system with a guru. Right. A spiritual path. No, I, I, spiritual, yes. I was always interested. My dad had a big collection of books, and I was an avid reader, so um, I used to read the Upanishads. I used to read Vivekananda. I used to read um, the various versions of Ramayana and Mahabharata. Every summer holidays, that was my thing to do. So it was always a very exciting thing to read about these People who, you know, my my uh, my my uh, my admiration for people like Prahlada or Dhruva, these are people who sacrificed everything mm. for their belief. I used to always wonder, will I ever have that kind of faith? You know, to to just quit everything and say this is what I want, or not to get this, for instance. So, so I used to think, well, but then I saw the scene in India where, you know, you could pay, slip a hundred rupee note and jump the queue and go to the temple. I never went to the temples. I only attended temples when somebody got married in them. Mm. So I had this healthy aversion for jumping the queue and other things. I must have been a lefty in some <laughs> life. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I knew that there was this fabulous thing that is described in our Upanishads and other texts. And I used to say, where is the connect between that and this? What's going on in a temple? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's going on, what's going on with the gurus. Uh, that was the time when Jim Jones and other things oh, yeah. happened. Oh, yeah. So it was, I was the least likely person to follow a guru at that time. And, uh, but somehow... And this is a somehow. Uh, I uh, I I met Babuji, and after that, I said I don't care. He may be a guru. He may not be a guru. I just want to hang out with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Where was that meeting? Where was that first meeting? Um, actually, I met him a little earlier than um, I joined. My brother was uh, in the system, so mm -hmm. he used to come and pick me up from the hostel to take me home on weekends. 
So one weekend he said, um, do you mind my guru is going to Europe for the first time and he's in Delhi now? Would you mind uh, if I take you there first before we go home? I said, yes, of course, your guru, I'll go. So I went and I was introduced to him by my brother. And uh, I just did the usual namaste and uh, didn't feel anything at that time. It was just... Uh, but then, you know, I have to go back and tell you something that happened that I didn't connect to the, this event at that time. One day I was in the hostel. I don't know why. All of a sudden I had this, this intense longing to just close my eyes and ask. And no reason at all I wasn't having any catastrophic situation, nothing. I said, God, if you're there, show yourself to me. And I just, out of the blue, this thought came to me. I sat for a few minutes, and then I said, okay, chalo, chalte. That was it. But then when I go back and look at the dates, it was within a week that I met Babaji. Wow. But I didn't realize it. Yeah, at that time when I went, I thought he was my brother's guru. No. It's only later that you no. connected the dots. Yeah, th that's because I just realized that, you know, once somebody told me, I mean, of course, everybody tells you that it's not an accident. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was not an accident because how can you suddenly fall in love with an old man like that, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not the kind of a person, you know? I, I'm a very deliberate person. But uh, this man just made me feel like that was it, you know? And so I, I said, why am I feeling like this, you know? Not that I was worried that I was feeling like this, but I was, I was kind of introspecting because uh, my father, to whom I was very close, used to get very upset every time I went to Shah Jampur. So he would say, hey, your guru gives it telepathically, why, uh, telegraphically, that was my father's word. He's giving you telegraphically, why do you have to go to Shah Jampur? I said, tell him, no, I want to go. And then he would come up, manufacture all kinds of illnesses before I would go. And I'd give him all medicines. I eat this, take this, you'll be fine. And so I, I understood that my father was kind of getting, um, I wouldn't say he was anxious because my brother was already following the system. My father knew it was a safe place. But suddenly his daughter who was, you know, so close to him, was suddenly running away to somebody else. Mm, and eating into his time with yeah. you. Yeah, not so much the time part. It was just that I think uh, he couldn't understand that that space being taken away. Sure. And uh, so, I, I, so I used to wonder, why am I feeling like this? But I could, there was no excuse, no explanation, but I was happy. I just said, it doesn't have to be, I don't have to go get, you know. I don't have to go to Central Region or do anything like that. I'll hang out with this guy. Wow. And uh, there used to be a very devoted uh, uh, Abhyasi who used to be with Babuji. His name was Satpalji. And we used to, during Bandaras, everybody would chase after him to mm -hmm. understand the details of Saj Mark, you know. So... Once he gave this explanation, and I thought that was really neat. He said, 
भाई मैं सेंट्रल रीजन वेंट्रल रीजन कोई नहीं जानता मैंने इस बूढ़े को पकड़ रखा ये कहीं भी ले जाए ठीक है एंड आई थॉट दैट एक्सप्लेन एग्जैक्टली वॉट आई फेल्स यू नो आई वॉज नॉट इंटरेस्टेड इन स्पिरिचुअल आई मीन आई वॉज इंटरेस्टेड इन रीचिंग द सेंट्रल रीजन और doing anything else like that the theory of uh, yeah it, it at the same time i knew there was a method to this madness you know it's it's a, the scientist in me was constantly deliberating on uh, what does this mean and what does that mean i'd go read and i would understand some of it some of it i wouldn't understand but at the same time there was this uh, there was this curious part of me the, the child part of me that said Hey, I'm hanging out with the best guy. Why worry about these things? Perhaps the understanding had already happened because of all your reading of the Upanishads and Vivekananda. No, but I couldn't connect. You know, one is to say yes. I knew that this kind of relationship is possible. Mm. That I understood, but I didn't understand the mechanics of it. How is it? I remember when when they told me that the, about transmission, and then they then. you know when i used to deliberate on this understanding of constant remembrance i said dimag mein to how can you do two things at a time <laughs> huh? how can you be in remembrance and do something else i said how can you do surgery being in remembrance how can you do this with? so you know like i was kind of making very practical um, correlations and that didn't fit but then i knew that there was something very special about this guy that I didn't care. I mean, he didn't have to be the most famous man. He didn't have to be the most sought-after man. Mm-hmm. He was there, and I was there. We were happy, and As that's all we used to do. You know, even wow. when we got to spend time with him, I used to tell him, "You rest," and then he'll take his hookah and he'll just smoke away, and then I'd just sit there and quietly listen to him. That's it. Listen wow. to the hookah. That was it. Wow. because as far as uh, gurus go he had uh, very little of the kind of accoutrements you expect of a guru you know the kind of uh, larger than life image some gurus have you know some spiritual teachers have uh, who dress grandiosely and have a large entourage and uh, sit up on a throne was he like that at all no he was the simplest man and he was the most childlike man i have ever seen and so for me it was like my old buddy who's who knows a lot and this i just have to hang out with him that's it i didn't care that you know like later on when i used to think about after i got to see his diaries and all i used to think my god i was sitting with him and he was doing having this great conversations with all these great guys and he didn't let on <laughs> mm. and that is the beauty of his uh, existence i think to me there was never this and there was this utmost sincerity it wasn't like he was putting it on and when he says my simplicity is a veil <laughs> you understood exactly what he meant because mm. he was like that utter simplicity utter simplicity wow. and utter innocence and he uh He never said a word that was out of place. I've never heard him use one word extra than he needed to use. And that, you know, when they say that um, uh, saintliness is a proper use of faculties, uh, this is something that I understood earlier. I saw earlier, but I recognized it in him 
more than anybody else I had ever seen. And did this happen in the first meeting or over the course of a few meetings? When did you know that uh, he was? See, when I first joined, um, I mean, like, I, I met him like this once. And then afterwards, um, you know, every, every Basant, uh, we used to go from Delhi by bus. I mean, the people in Delhi. Mm -hmm. And the Delhi Abhyasis were a very close-knit bunch. We were like one big family. So, so they would go to Shahjanpur by bus. So the bus would start in one house and then we'd have chai, samosa, something else in somebody's house. You know, all joining in together, finally we'd go. And uh, so one of the, uh, one of the Abhyasis from uh, Ahmedabad, he heard about this bus trip. He decided he was going to come on that bus trip because he thought that would be a fun thing <laughs> to do. So he is related to my sister-in-law. So he came to our house, and I happened to be there in, in my brother's house. So he chased me around a whole day asking me to join. He said, this is really good for you. You will become a better person. You'll be this, you'll be that. And I told him, sir, I'm really quite busy. Those days I was teaching medical school, postgraduates. Also, I was doing uh, my own research and then, you know, running a small unit there. So it's a very hectic life. Mm -hmm. So I said, you know, I can't promise that I'll do all these things, but, you know, really that's why I'm, not, I'm saying, you know, I, I, I don't want to tell you that I'll do it and not do it. And then after some time he got frustrated, he said, I think you're scared that others will laugh at you. <laughs> that got my good. I said, of course not. I'll take it just now. But I <laughs> promise you I may not be able to do it, so you shouldn't get upset. So he said, okay. So well, that's And that's how, how you started? That's how I started, on a dare. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so... When I saw so the next two sittings, I had to go to somebody else because he had already left on his trip to Shahjanpur. So I was uh, to fend for myself, finding another preceptor. So I would do, and you know, I would think that I was doing everybody a favor by just going and attending Sunday satsang. That's all I did in the beginning. Then one of the preceptors um, in our system, she came to visit uh, Delhi and she asked me to go with her to visit her brother. It's not my practice to just randomly go to somebody's brother's house with somebody who's, you know, a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. Somehow that day I felt like going. I said, okay, I'll go. So I went. That was the year I think Carter had been uh, elected. So on the way, we were not talking about spirituality at all. And uh, she said, oh, this Carter is a nice man. His heart is good. And I'm thinking, what does she know about Carter? <laughs> She's never left India. I hadn't gone to U.S. at that time. I was still in India. So I said, well, anyway, she's talking. Everybody's listening very attentively, so I better keep my mouth shut. So we went, and then we went to her brother's house. We had nice samosa and chai and everything. Came back. And then for a whole week, I felt like Babuji was walking with me and going with me everywhere. Such a joyous feeling. And I said, 
And I couldn't literally not shake him off. And I said, my God, I should take this seriously. Just hanging out with this lady, talking about Carter can get me here. Mm-hmm. Then I should get more serious. That's when I became serious. Before that, I was just, as I told you, mm-hmm. I used to think I was doing them a favor by going for Sunday satsang. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned how the Delhi uh, heartfulness practitioners were like one big family. Mm-hmm. So you've seen that time. and. uh now you know the family has grown considerably how do you uh, what uh, what is the change you see from those days with babuji to now well um see i just to give you a context um one year when we were in chajanpur for basant there were 2000 people and the 2000 registration took place at 12 o'clock at night mm-hmm. i was so excited i ran and knocked on chariji's door to tell him we have 2000 people here <laughs> you know and you know that that was the size of the group at that time i'm talking 77 78 that time frame so if you generally knew people who were in the mission because you'd meet them somewhere or the other so it was it was uh, it was a very uh, very small family uh, and we knew everybody and it was a good thing and at that time we needed that we mm-hmm. needed to form a group that worked together well but then uh, like you said the family has to grow and i'm glad to say that i don't know most of them now <laughs> it's too large to know it has to be large and i'm gra- glad for that because now you know the seeds that lalaji sowed so many many years ago when they grow they need more attention they need more time so we need a larger group to serve humanity absolutely so that can only happen with Uh, the subsequent masters putting in different levels of um, interventions to create that space in which a larger group could flourish and spread the word across so in your initial days in the us after you started the heartfulness practice the us uh, contingent i mean the us uh, abhyasis must have been a very small group as well and that very also- true very true i my nearest preceptor was uh, 100 miles away and we would meet once in a while those days we were not allowed to have uh, remote sitting remote sitting so we would meet him he, whenever he came see i was in the bay area so he lived in a place called pacific grove along the beach so he would come on his way to go somewhere or think like that so we would meet or somebody would come from india then they would visit and then so in my town probably there were only two people in, not even in my town in the entire bay area there were only two people at that time uh so really uh it was a very, very you know we could group. we could count in fingers how many people we were <laughs> how many do you think today there might be in the bay area just to estimate i have no clue i have no clue because a um, because of the pandemic 
we don't know how many people are really practicing. Sure, you sure. know, we've given so many of them online, and so many of them are practicing regularly, and so many of them uh, hear about it. So many of them take these master classes. So we have no clue how many people are there. So yes, it used to be. I used to have a region, so-called regional gatherings in my house. And there would be about 15 people, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all of California. Wow. wow. So it's not that many at that time, yes. And did you ever find it uh, at a crossroads with your medical practice that you were also following a spiritual path? And here uh, is a person, a neurologist, who is very scientific. But it is also something, you know, that is not generally accepted. Interesting that you asked that question. Um, I had colleagues who used to ask me, Padmini, you're a neurologist. Do you believe in this mumbo-jumbo? <laughs> I said, come, I'll make you believe in this mumbo-jumbo. Come take sittings from me. So they used to really make fun of me when I told them that I practice meditation and things like that. But these were the same guys within a span of about 10 to 15 years uh, started to send patients to me saying, I think you can help him with your stuff. <laughs> so Your stuff being heartfulness. Meditation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so yes, the you know it's 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 interesting that this, the transition took place over time, but I never hid it. I never told anybody that uh, uh, I was very open. I said this is what I do. If you want, I'd be happy to help you learn. And uh, some took took to it, some didn't. Many of them just experimented. By those days, people like uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, his classes were very popular mm -hmm. with the serious spiritual seekers. You know, and and the Beatles had visited him. Yes, they... yeah. So that's that's sort of a little pop. But you have to understand, doctors don't think they're like Beatles, you mm. see? <laughs> they, sure. they want to look like they're more serious people. Sure. So they wouldn't be too excited about the Beatles part. But some of them I know um, told me that they do meditate uh, with this uh, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's classes. So they had these 20-minute classes uh, mm -hmm. that they used to do. And they took all these expensive classes. They were thousand bucks or something like that. Those days, thousand bucks was a lot of money. Uh, but um, some of them were very serious, and they were very helped by that also. And I've heard Babuji himself say that Mahesh Yogi is doing good work. So mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. I think you know what what heartfulness does, and this is the beauty of heartfulness. We don't claim to be exclusive. Sure, we don't yeah. claim that we are the only ones to give you this. We have some tricks up our sleeve, <laughs> and we are happy to share that. But um, And our gurus have always said that we must respect all systems and all gurus with the same degree of devotion that we respect our own. And it's one of the things that Lalaji has mentioned in his... Uh, uh, do's and don'ts for abhyasis. And uh, I've always taken that very seriously. Because at the end of the day, uh, and I, I always tell people this, uh, because I think the scientist in me always comes out. So I always tell them, 
it may have worked for me. How do you know it's going to work for you? Sure. So you sure. have to, I said, you have to do it. And Babaji used to say, you must try it, test it, and then accept. So I used to tell him, my own teacher says this. So why don't you try it, test it, and see if it's good for you? If not, you go your way. So I think this Catholicism that Babuji practiced in in actuality uh, had a greatest impact on me. Because everywhere, uh, I mean, those days were the days of Sai Baba and others. I, mm -hmm. don't know, I don't know all the systems that were there, but there were some really fake guys at that time. There was one Bal Yogeshwar or somebody who did some really weird stuff. Anyway, so... So I was a little skeptical about all these gurus, um, even though I never thought of Babuji as a guru. He was my buddy. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, ne I, I could never bring myself up because gurus sounded like some alien person, you know, somebody you had to be respectful and keep a distance from. Feet. Keep a distance from. Not so much the falling at feet as the distance from. Sure, you know? sure. But he was so, he was so part of my life. Hmm. Uh, so I didn't, uh, I didn't want that feeling of separateness, you know. So I would always think of him as just my buddy. Anyway, so he always had this um, enormous generosity when it comes to helping anybody. I have never, ever felt him say that, um, you know, this particular group is bad or that particular. I mean, not that I spent a lot of time with him because... Even the time that I got to spend with him, I used to, he was so frail. I wanted him to rest. I wanted him to get more, uh, you know, uh, private time because he was very frail by the time I joined the mission. So he would, even when he would say, come sit inside, I'd say, no, you go to bed now. I'm not going to talk to you. <laughs> Things like that, you know, because we wanted him to get that space to be himself. And uh, so, so I may have spent not a whole lot of time with him, and even the time I've spent with him, I may not have talked to him too much. And even in the time that we spoke, sometimes he would not wear his dentures. <laughs> then I wouldn't understand what he's saying. And it's very awkward to make him say the same thing twice. So I just keep quiet. But um, but it was just the most lovely time I've had. So you've been in uh, many places, as you were saying. You've been you have that gypsy heart, you know. It's just going all over, traveling all over. And now you've come to this place, Kana Shantivanam. How did this happen? Was it part of the plan? No, I. You know, um, I'm not spring chicken. <laughs> I have to find a place where I'll finally uh, be. And in the beginning, um, I wasn't sure that Kana had uh, what I would need as an older person because there were no medical facilities. And so I was thinking, oh, when they were first announcing that they were going to build an ashram and all that, I didn't realize, I didn't know whether it was the right place for me. But then uh, there was always this pull, because Charji used to talk about it a lot. And I always felt that he wanted us to go there. He didn't tell me that. He didn't mm. tell anybody that, that I know of. But I always felt that he, 
this was his thing. And uh, then he would talk so uh, happily about how this will be the place where uh, it'll be a self-contained community mm -hmm. and this and that. And he would say, we will grow our own food. And I used to think, oh boy, this sounds like the the, the Jewish uh, communes. <laughs> yeah, the, what do they call them? The kibbutz? Kibbutz, yeah. And in fact, my some of my family members call this a commune. I say, <laughs> <laughs> but they are—they all love the way it has turned out, and they are all itching to come here. And recently, you had um, your uh, friends from your medical college come here. Yeah, that was a lovely experience. And what did they think of the place? Oh, uh, well, they liked it a lot. They didn't expect that it would be like this, you know. Uh, as I told you, one of them said, this is the most scientific ashram I have seen. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I took them around. I showed them the uh, tissue culture lab and uh, all the other, uh, our uh, um, rainforest and other places. So they were really um, happy to see that. <laughs> Excuse me. But um, I don't know. Um, uh, two of them have already s told me that some of their friends might call me to come and visit here. Oh, nice. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think Kana has that impact on people. When they come, they have these ideas about ashram being a very solemn, somber place. And then they see this place vibrant with all its... Uh, different types of activities, then they realize that this is really something special. It's um, it's very difficult to categorize Kanha, you know. I mean, I don't know if we can call it an ashram or an organic farm or forest. There's so many initiatives going on. There's so, it's so many things to so many different people. What is it to you, sister? What do you think it's Kanha is? You know, I was thinking about this. Um, you know how in the Yatra garden, you start from point one and you keep going till you hit 13. And as you know, the each of these points have different qualities and different things that we all have. So I think, I look at it this way. It's like we all have to get to the central area, the, the point 13, as they say. But we all start from different places. Each point has its own characteristics. So like that, even though we may start uh, with different, uh, uh, different qualities that describe us, finally we'll all have the same qualitylessness. And so this, to me, is... Uh, I think I sent you something to the thing that it's it's a place where imperfect people go to become perfect or try to become perfect. Hmm. And this somebody who's helping you get there. Hmm. And this this place organically makes it easier for you to become that. I see the way I'm changing here to the way I was elsewhere and I have to say this atmosphere is just magic.
I, I, I just feel the extension of myself everywhere, which I don't, I mean, I'm not going to say that I feel that in every space that I go to. Mm. But it, it's just simply easier to feel that here because of the amount of work that our masters have done in just changing the atmosphere. I would encourage everybody to not have any preconceived ideas. Don't even believe a word of what I say. Just come and feel it. Just be open to it and enjoy that experience of learning what this place is. Also, the community here, I mean, a lot of places we have a certain, um, you know, we expect a certain um, kind of people to be living or participating. But the community at uh, Kanha kind of uh, defies categorization again. I mean, you have the whole gamut from industrialists or, you know, who, who drive really fancy cars to people who can't even uh, afford a bicycle. You have the whole gamut. It's like a, it's like a little micro slice of society. And somehow they all come together and they all work together and they have they are building something with a common goal in mind. Correct. Do you Who think... doesn't need God? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we all sit down and meditate together. And, uh, you think that is the real glue. It's, it's your old buddy who's uh, <laughs> getting everybody together. We don't know. This is the... This is the part, this is the silent part of the work that goes on. Um, we all think we are doing something to improve ourselves. Somebody is helping us do this. And that somebody is the guru. And our, one of the, one of the foremost things that, uh, uh, that Daji started after he became the president of the mission was this uh, bandara we had in in uh, Lucknow where he emphasized anonymity and simplicity. And that is the way these guys work. You don't know their work. You, you know, see the effect of their work, but... If you ask them, they will absolutely claim no knowledge of it. I've, I've lit, literally confronted Chariji. I would say, why are you lying to me? You really have, you should be able to tell us that you have done this for us. And you say, no, I'm just doing what my boss asked me to do. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the beauty of their existence, that even they themselves, I'm sure, do not, are not aware of what they are doing. Even though they have tremendous insight, I'm not going to underplay that. But their way of doing it, you know, and this is, you know, for the longest time, I used to think that Lalaji was the most fortunate guy because I used to think, who will get such a dedicated disciple like Babaji? You know, because, you know, he, he'll say, I cannot even drink a drop of water without his permission. And I say, my God. And then I saw all my, remember I used to tell you that I was enamored of Pralada and Nachiketa and all these other 
great uh, people who were, you know, uh, faith personified. And I heard him say this. And when he says this, there is not one, uh, there's absolute, absolute, uh, uh, how shall I put it? The word is uh, sincerity in the way he says it. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt, in there will be no doubt in anybody's mind that when he says this, he means every bit of it. And I used to think, what a lucky man he is to have a disciple like this. But I'm sure uh, if he can be that devoted, the person to whom he was devoted must have been an enormously, uh, you know, special person. But what I'm saying is, to me, I used to always think that, oh, Lalaji, you're a lucky guy. You got this guy for you. But this is the level to which they are unaware of themselves, is what I'm saying. You know, there were times when he would say, I could spin the universe like a top. At the same time, he would say, I can't drink a drop of water with. So where is the connect? Mm -hmm. And that is the that is the the simplicity and anonymity personified that that does not allow them to even be aware of what they are. They have to probably come ten steps down to even be aware of what they are doing. Sure. Sure. Also in Kanha, since you are from the medical field, Kanha is also involved in a lot of wellness initiatives, health initiatives. I mean, uh, right from conventional allopathic medicine to Ayurveda to acupuncture to uh, you know different homeopathy. Um, how do you see that going? I mean, because uh, sometimes we can be very exclusive in our outlook that uh, it's only this way and not the other way, and absolutely disregard the other way. I mean, I have a, a family physician who, you know, just refuses to talk if I mention homeopathy. Mm. <laughs> <You> <laughs> know, so. Oh, there are quite a few of us like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, or if I mention Ayurveda for that matter. But uh, here in Kanha, you have all of that, and side by side. Correct. And how do you view that coming from the medical field? I've, this has been my dream all along, to integrate because I knew, see, there was no decimation of population in India. And Ayurveda has been in existence for thousands of years. So clearly something worked, hmm. right? So, and then populations elsewhere were growing. So clearly something was happening in various places where, which were useful and productive for those populations. So... Why not learn from each other? And uh, we are lucky in India to have access to so many types of medicine. You know, uh, you if you ask, actually, if you secretly ask all your patients, they'll tell you, yes, doctor, I go to this homeopath and I take this also. I do this also. And unfortunately, the the so-called modern system of medicine that I was trained in uh, had a lot of contempt for this, unfortunately, because none of them explored this scientifically. But, you know, it was very common in, in my medical school for people to say, yeah, to homeopathic dose <laughs> in a very denigrating way. And I used to tell them, how do you know homeopathy doesn't work? You haven't tried it. You've just read a few books. You think you know this. Fine. 
you've treated patients fine but you can't, see you can't say you know what you know but you should be able to know what you don't know when you put down something you don't know it's prejudice sure so if you as going back to what my professor told us if you know what you don't know and know who to ask then i think i've done the good job so i always felt that if something i do cannot help my patient i have to find somebody else who can help my patient because they have come to me in all sincerity with the hope that i will give them some guidance so i've always felt that and and i've always wanted to have a clinic where i would integrate everything but you know things didn't happen the way i wanted i tried in ucla to meet there is a east west clinic or something they called it so i wanted to kind of get involved in that but it was heavily chinese uh, oriented so that guy said if you want to learn chinese medicine i can teach you but i i don't want to do the kind of thing you were thinking about so to me this is really my dream and one of the things that i would like to do i don't know whether everybody would be interested in this is to have, take a few patients and then uh, you know difficult patients and then run it by different special uh, you know medical specialties meaning you know ayurveda this that mm-hmm. and then see what works or even a combination of things absolutely and you have of course the meditation yeah. is the backbone yeah. of uh, so you know the, the 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 good thing is we're treating one human being we're acting as if he's got five different ways of uh, you know uh, re- responding there's one heart one mus- lung one i mean two lungs of course but what i'm saying is is one system mm-hmm. and everybody approaches it from a different angle that doesn't mean they're they're not right so if you can learn some more after all uh, we didn't know the effects of pollution um, you know even 50 years ago cigarette smoking we didn't know that yeah i mean in mm. the world wars it was part of the ration of yeah. the soldiers to be getting cartons of cigarettes nobody yeah. knew it was bad for you yeah so what i'm saying is there's always learning and one of the nice things about medicine is you you have to learn continuously so why not learn from other sources why not bring see if you had to treat everybody with allopathic medicine we don't have the wherewithal it is too expensive it's impossible mm. the few countries are are they're all breaking up you know that they're breaking down because they cannot afford the 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 so called level of care for everybody so the insurance companies are going broke so we know that what we are doing is not practical yeah not practical mm. so why not find something that will help them and not cost so much i mean are you going to take your medicine or are you going to take your food the for many people in, in north america that is a fact a problem that's the choice they face yes that's the choice they face can you pay your insurance premium or can you bring food on the table well that's like uh, see it is unfortunately the the the, the top 5% has no clue and doesn't care 
So the people who devise the systems have, are all on their own. The insurance companies have their profit motives. The So I won't say all of them are bad, but what I'm saying is there is a tendency to call these systems of medicine unscientific. How do you know that? Hmm. Some idiot sat there and saw patients regularly and gave some treatment and they got better. So how are you better than them? Just because you have few papers you can publish or few uh, few books you have read or few conferences you have attended, you don't become any better. So when approach to knowledge is so biased, so prejudiced, I think that's a prescription for disaster, which is why it is impossible uh, anywhere in the world mm. to give the standard of care that you would want for yourself. Absolutely. And I think uh, there's a nice parallel that you see in uh, medicine and also in spirituality, that uh, in medicine also the goal is one of all medicine, be it Ayurveda, home, it is to give better health. It is health giving for the patient. That is your goal. And in spirituality also what uh, Kanha is about, that the goal is one. Everybody is welcome to this campus and approach it from their own. I mean, you have different people from different beliefs coming here and uh, organizing their events and using the facilities here. So it's that commonality of the goal is there. And that's even in the wellness offerings of Kanha and heartfulness. It's there that the goal is to give health by whatever means exactly. you can. See, at the end of the day, there is the physical health. Then there is the mental health. There is the emotional health, finally the spiritual health. All this health is best taken care of by using preventive medicine. And nobody pays attention to that. They do, but they don't. Meaning they know mentally that prevention is the best way for cure, but we don't spend our money where we, where we think it should be spent. If we can prevent all these illnesses by, for instance, in Ayurveda, they have this concept of dinacharya. What you eat every day helps you to stay healthy. There is the ritucharya, what, what you do in different seasons. So they have come to this kind of advanced thinking over several centuries of figuring out Allopathic medicine initially was only practiced by barbers, right? I, I don't know this no, history. No. It's a long, 300 years ago, those were the guys. That's how they, all these infections used to happen. Because oh, okay, because barbers were being visited by so many people. Yeah, people, yeah. So the, the is, issue is, because at that time they didn't have a concept of infection very much. So think about it. Our dinacharya tells you how to wash your hand even. Everything in Ayurveda is a way of life to stay healthy. Of course, when you get sick, they can help you also. But the concept in my house, I can, when we were growing up, my mother would um, give us oil bath twice a week, no matter what happened. Mm. For the girls, it was Tuesdays and Fridays. For the boys, it was Wednesdays and Saturdays. You had to have your oil bath. 
and then we had to have uh, a concoction with some castor oil like you know like a, a, a purging experience so that your stomach is cleaned out totally mm. so these are all things that were done preventively in many families and we were i mean my father died at the age of 94 he just walked and said okay i'm going to die and died wow mm. so what i'm saying is yes are we going to be able to do everything that we did in those days well if we put our emphasis on that maybe we'll find a way to do it popping a instead of popping a vitamin pill which of course one could say you know not everybody has access to everything food mm-hmm. and all that but if you followed a certain ritual in your eating habits and all these things are are regional what you if you notice for instance in in north india the spices you use are different from the ones absolutely. you use in south india absolutely in, right? fr- in fact the fruits are different we exactly. just experienced it 3 days ago because there was these ice apples if you saw yes, yes, on yes, the whatsapp yes. which i had no clue what they Even were this, this was my first experience i had never heard apples. of them you know ice apples so they call them nunga in mm-hmm. tamil and of course we have uh, tamil people you know in kanha we such a mix of mm-hmm. people we have tamil people and uh, one of my tamil friends said oh you know you must try this and of course we all stood in line and it was uh, it was something that we we'd never even seen in our lives you know exactly. for us north indians it was very difficult but uh, that's it's exactly what you're saying everything is so different see babuji used to say the and this is he used to give me some pearls like this which i wish i had written it down at that time um he used to say that the cure is always where the illness is hmm hmm so right next to the stingy nettle you find the yeah. dock leaf that you can <laughs> exactly exactly so the 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 reality is that uh in the in the winters of uh, north india where i grew up um you had to use a lot of somph and other um condiments that were appropriate for that climate ginger powder salt ginger. was used a lot yeah. mm. so all these things were seasonal if you notice every season brought its own kind of food Absolutely. that we ate even the things we cooked and in my mother's house there was a set pattern by which we ate on ekadashi my mother fasted so in the evening she would make a little uh uh drink with uh, moong ki dal with some uh, jaggery and a little bit of uh, cardamom and because the whole day they would have fasted so you have to eat something light so they would just have it before going to bed with some milk and then on on the day after ekadashi dwadashi there was a set menu mm-hmm. you had to eat by 8:30 because you were hungry and so there would be a certain type of uh, 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 green that you would have you get it in our ashram it is called um uh, uh i forget the name right now it's just escaping so they they sell it here mm-hmm. so you you make a, a vegetable out of it with that green and then the menu is also set because you have to eat something that is not too heavy 
and you should eat it early enough so that your stomach doesn't uh, starve for too long. Mm-hmm. So like that every day. And then in the mornings, they would cook uh, relatively heavy food. For the evenings, they did not make even the dals. You know, in North India, there's a practice of eating dal because you guys are hardy. You know, you work a lot. So people like us who don't do too much, uh, don't need so much uh, uh, calories. So the the food eaten by the um, by the farmers is different by the people who were the landowners. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Because these guys had to be in the sun. And, you know, everybody had this. Now it is now sold in uh, five-star hotels. I have to tell you this. Uh, what you do is we, uh, the leftover rice, you put water in it and let it stay overnight. It ferments. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot of B vitamins. So you add a little bit of uh, dahi to it. Or in Poor people cannot afford that. So they would put some uh, buttermilk in it and then have it with uh, onions and uh, uh, green pepper. And now that is being sold in, uh, in five-star <laughs> hotels in South India in uh, these mud pots. And it's presented with a flourish. <laughs> but those these people needed vitamins. How did they get it? Yes. See, the food habits. So Ayurveda made uh, uh, my, uh, one of my Ayurveda friends used to tell me, uh, uh, don't think of it as uh, vaidyam, think of it as uh, for food, he used another Sanskrit word. Um, I'm forgetting the word. Uh, so think of it as food and not as uh, treatment. Ah. So he wanted me to, for some reason, he told me to take this. I said, you guys make my life <laughs> miserable. Don't have coffee, don't have this, don't have this. So he says, well, some things you have to give up to get better. But generally, he said... Uh, Think of it as food and eat it. Because otherwise, you know, um, this trifala, you know, yeah, everywhere yeah. in India, yes. you people use amla. Yes, yes. Right? And the trifalas, all the three. My mother used to give us home treatment remedies for almost everything. And we, her uh, pantry had all the various things that uh, were available. And uh, we used we used to just be treated with that. And all the neighborhood uh, uh, young women used to come to my mother. Auntie, I have this problem. What do you suggest? My mother knew something to suggest to them. Instead of everybody running to the doctor for a little stomach ache for the child, mm-hmm. my mother would give hand remedies for almost everything. Wow. And she wasn't formally schooled. My mother probably went up to fifth grade. Incredible. That's traditional wisdom passed down Mm. over the ages. Because, you know, everybody in her house and everybody in there, my mother knew how to read uh, read the pulse. She just learned it from her grandmother. Not, she didn't have any formal training. Grandmother taught her, you know, because kids just hang around their grandmother. so. (laughs) So she just taught her. So it's interesting, I mean, but in the modern uh, day and age, we value 
exotica, something that is not of our place, is so exotic and it's so attractive to us, you know. I mean, and it works both ways because mm. you have uh, something like, uh, which is a very common uh, drink in the winters, is a haldi dood in North mm -hmm. India. You before Even here, to, yes. It's very common to have haldi and a little pepper and in, mm. mixed in your milk. And now you are getting turmeric lattes yes, at exactly. Starbucks. <laughs> exactly. Um, and look at the coconut uh, coffee. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there was a time when they said all Malayalis were having heart attacks because they were having too much coconut. I think it was cigarettes. <laughs> Most Malayalis were smoking. <laughs> yes. Yes, no doubt. And also it's, um, you know, the fact that you value exotica so much that you value uh, maybe, you know, something from oranges from somewhere or apples from mm -hmm. somewhere or apricots from somewhere. If they I have, don't buy anything that is not regional. Yeah, I don't, because I that don't necessitates buy. preservatives then. If, if it has to come all the way yes. from California yes. or something so, to India. Exactly, exactly. So buy local is, is really very true. And Ghana has taken a different route. Ghana has decided to grow whatever is exactly. grown here. You uh, Exactly, exactly. Half the problems in, in, uh, in agriculture is because we transplanted things that don't belong here. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And also it's um, you, the entire process you are now aware of. So it's a great place to actually implement things because it's difficult for for us to go to a person who's living in a flat in a major metropolitan city and say, oh, you must uh, eat fresh uh, fruit or you must uh, buy organic food, uh, things like that. It's very difficult for us to say. But because it's just not practical for that person. You know, he does You know, I used to think that, but I mm. no longer think so. I'll tell you why. Because um, I started to be more serious about my food um, uh, maybe a decade or so ago. Um, once you decide, you can source many things. In, in Chennai, for instance, now, where I used to live, there are people having terrace gardens where they grow their own vegetables. Wow. There are people who are growing, uh, they bought land in the outskirts of Chennai, and they grow uh, organic uh, vegetables. And they, because the supply chain is so good, mm -hmm. that they're able to uh, distribute it. See, it is another matter that... Uh, it has become uh, a class issue because it's become expensive. It doesn't have to be. If everybody uses, the cost will come down. Sure. And if we all insist that everybody should be given only organic food, then we won't need so many pharmacies. Every third building in Chennai is a pharmacy. Every fourth building is a uh, eatery. So you see the connection? Yeah, absolutely. You eat that bad stuff, you go to the pharmacy, get your drug, and then, you know, you go to the doctor who is, you know, the fifth uh, building. So we've created an ecosystem where all these people flourish. I'm not saying they shouldn't do their jobs, but my point is, if we recognize the value of dinacharya, and do it sincerely. Because my mother traveled from a small village in South India. She got married and then lived in Chennai for a little while. Then she moved in 1943 to Delhi before independence. So 
this is a uh, this is a practice she was able to stick to because she said i don't care mm. my kids get these things no matter what and once she made up her mind that way she said what is it that i can cut so she will cut everything else but this mm. so it's a question of so it's a of question of priority mm. right and if the government prioritizes something like this as a health for the community or for the nation it's not impossible a country that that has is able to send satellites to all over the place should be able to get some organic food to its population sure so i think sure. we have our emphasis in the wrong place look at the number of cell phones that we are carrying around each one of us has one or two and some of us have more uh, gadgets than we know what to do with so if you don't spend that money there but you spend the money elsewhere do you think you won't be able to afford organic food it's just not been prioritized enough and there's not been that a willingness on the part of the medical faculty to to suggest that this is a way out of illness mm. in fact someone was telling me a tamil saying mm. that actually says if you uh, paid the farmer you wouldn't need to pay the hospital there's another saying i will tell you which is even better vaidyanukku kudukkaradhukku badhala vanniyanukku kudukkalam that means instead of giving it to the vaidya you give it to the guy who makes the oil so okay. yeah so put your money in the oil so you don't have to go to the vaidya go to the vaidya go mm. to the doctor mm. so this is all see this ancient wisdom especially tamil as a language i mean it's my mother tongue uh, uh, i'm glad uh, that i know how to read and write and i tell you it's it's amazing what treasures are there i'm sure it's there in all our languages mm. and uh, somehow we have not uh, spent the time to use them practically all these sayings are very practical it's not it's not some esoteric stuff or it's not some fancy uh, coupling of words to make you feel good or intelli- intelligent yes everyday normal stuff common sense stuff which people were practicing i would say that my mother's generation people were still like us i mean my mother was not an exception in her generation hmm my generation once we started to go out and study and do other things and travel more we didn't spend the time to see what is important to us we've wasted our life chasing after things that have no meaning in our lives and lost out on the good stuff precious stuff that is within our reach but do you see any silver lining in the future do you see uh... i absolutely do and the reason is um what i see in the younger generation we are a confused lot but our younger generation is very clear i'm not saying i know enough about them because i do hear a lot of bad stuff also mm-hmm. there's a lot of addiction i'm told there's a lot of addiction to different things not just uh, uh drugs so it's it's not an easy thing to wean everybody off of these problems but the real hope i think is 
when we develop holistically in Sahaj Marg. Mm. When, when, you know, our, our Ashtanga Yoga is not just, just Dhyan and Samadhi. Mm. So, incorporated in that, Patanjali had had the wisdom to incorporate everything that was important. He just said, I'll give you a, sh I mean, Babaji just said, I'll give you a shortcut to this. Mm. That doesn't mean the other things are irrelevant. Not important, yeah. So when we understand, and this is where I'm really grateful to Daji for all the stuff that he has put, it, put in public domain for everybody to learn from. You know, all his, uh, I mean, I give the special editions like I distribute candies to kids <laughs> because that wisdom is amazing, so practical. Mm. No doubt. Mm. No doubt. So, uh, Dr. Padmani, we've been speaking for over an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> Just one last question to end with, since you are a neurologist and you were just mentioning about how things are preventive, you know, traditional medicine is preventive. What do you think, does heartfulness also work as a preventive in a certain way? Absolutely, absolutely. You don't have to get the samskaras and then get rid of them. So the ultimate prevention is in heartfulness because by cleaning, you remove whatever is not there. By remembrance, you avoid forming samskaras. And uh, by prayer, you remove what you're not able to do yourself. So what better prevention can you get? Thank you so much, Dr. Padmini. It's been wonderful talking to you. I know that we can talk, uh, we can carry on, but it's late. It's getting late. It's uh, almost now. It's one hour, 20 minutes. So <laughs> but it's been, it's just flown by. It's been so engaging. I've loved uh, all the wisdom and I'm sure our listeners will gain a lot from this conversation. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to be with us. Thank you for asking me to join you. I always enjoy talking to you. You know that. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of KanaCast. Please follow and subscribe to KanaCast on Spotify, YouTube and Instagram. Until next time. Woof woof.